I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain, and we are excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure to subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome, and thanks again for joining us. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Mike. Beautiful spring day. That's all that I know. It's a summer, but yet it definitely feels like a spring day. How, how's your last month been, Archbishop? Well, great blessings. Uh, probably, well, for sure, the most uh, significant blessing was the ordination of uh, five men to the priesthood. And we can talk a little bit about that. But before that, I'd like to just mention that on the 5th of June, uh, I celebrated a really important anniversary for me. It was the day that I received my call from the Holy Father to become a bishop. And oh. I remember it every year on that day. It's changed my life. Uh, I have confidence that I'm doing God's will. And so I ask him on the 5th of June to help me be faithful. That's beautiful. And now Archbishop, how many years exactly has it been that you've been a bishop in the church? Uh, since 1996. 1996, wow. Well, thank you so much for your service, obviously as a priest, but then also especially as a bishop in leading so many other men uh, towards, and obviously all of our lay faithful, towards Christ. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Praise God. You know, Archbishop, before we move on further, I know uh, some of our listeners might notice that we are missing Mary Wilkerson today. Um, she's on, on some travel, but we are excited to have as a co-host with this episode, actually a guest named Nicole Joyce, who is uh, one of our other podcasters for the Archdiocese. Nicole, would you mind just quickly introducing yourself? Hello. How are you guys doing today? Great. Yes. Great, Nicole. Nice to see you. Well, here you are, Archbishop. It's nice to see you here. Um, I, uh, yeah, so I'm the co-host of Beyond Sunday, and some of your listeners might already know about our podcast, but we've been running since January. It's a weekly podcast for Catholic parents about how we reclaim Sunday and how we live the Sunday experience through the everyday moments of our weeks in our homes as little domestic churches. And you, and you co-host that with Rocky McCormick, isn't that right? I do, yes. Rocky and I are good friends, and we love getting together and just talking about kind of the real-world experience of being oh. a Catholic parent. You know, sometimes we we kind of strive a little too far, maybe. We, we set the goal a little too high, and I think that can leave a lot of parents feeling defeated. So we really try to be realistic about, about our expectations, but also be encouraging and hopeful um, and try to inspire families to just keep doing what they're doing because they're a lot of them are doing a really great job. So, so Nicole, you take into account diapers and skinned knees. <laughs> yes, yes, lots of diapers, lots of crying, paper cuts, all those things, trips to the emergency room. Um, and and Rocky and I are kind of in an interesting place. She still has kind of some younger kids, um, but she also has a tween. And I have a tween and a teen as well. So mm. uh, we have some of that big kid experience in there too, which you know brings in a whole separate set of questions about raising your kids in the faith. I was just about to ask that, Nicole. How many, how many children do you have in their ages? Yeah. I, I have four. I have a 15-year-old, oh. a 13-year-old, an 11-year-old, and an 8-year-old. Wow. And okay, just great. the 8-year-old is a girl. The, the older three are all boys. Oh, man. So, yeah. so you can guess who's in charge at my house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your girl. Oh, yeah, she makes all the decisions. <laughs> well, that's good. She's got three elder brothers to protect her and love her and serve her in all those great ways, right? So Yes, they've really, they've really set a good example for her, and her expectations of boys is very high, which maybe is a good thing and a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Nicole, thanks so much for joining us and helping to co-host for this episode. 
Yes, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So, Archbishop, you you just mentioned that you ordained five new men to the priesthood at the end of May. It was a really beautiful mass. I was able to be there with uh, my third son. He's 11, and he is an aspiring priest. He hopes one day to be a priest as well. And it was just so beautiful to see, you know, the the ceremony and and the piece, the different parts of the liturgy. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how your experience ordaining these men went and uh, what kind of graces you saw while you were there. One of the real blessings for me uh, is that over the years as the Archbishop, I've been able to maintain good relationships with our seminarians. So I know uh, each of the five men very personally. I'm aware of uh, uh, some of the ups and downs of their path to the priesthood. Uh, we have a really powerful moment uh, when I uh, examine them about becoming deacons. When I ask them to tell me their vocation story and uh, that, of course, would have been uh, a year ago with these men, but uh, that's very much what I think about uh, as I call down the Holy Spirit upon them. Uh, I think about the path that's led them to this moment of consecration, of self-oblation, and the Lord accepting it in their consecration. So for me, that's one of the great graces. And the other, another great grace is for me to think ahead about all of the blessings and the challenges, of course, that these men will have in uh, the lifetime of the priesthood that uh, is in front of them. And now, Archbishop, I know we have uh, five men specifically, and they're going obviously to a variety of uh, locations, so different parishes around the entire archdiocese, of course. Um, I was wondering, how is, how is it determined like where priests are assigned typically in the archdiocese? Well, we have a, a missioning board uh, made up of the auxiliary bishops, uh, the vicar for clergy, the vicar general, and uh, priests chosen by their peers to make up the board. And they make for me a recommendation uh, about each man. Uh, they also interview them before they make those recommendations. And we know that uh, there are certain uh, uh, qualities that we absolutely have to have in the uh, assignments that the men are given the most important of which is that they're assigned to be supervised by a pastor who can really be a strong mentor to them. Hmm. You might th it's not quite an internship. You might think of it more like a medical residency hmm. where uh, a man exercises his ministry, but he does it uh, under supervision and with advice. That's the most important thing. And then we send them to places where there's a great need and that they'll, uh, they'll work very hard. Uh, I remember when I was first ordained, uh, Cardinal Dearden said to me, well, you'll go to that church and there's so much work. After that, everything else will seem possible. <laughs> and uh, that's very much what's happening. So I, I think all of these men, yes, all of them are going to places that have schools, mm. and that's a very important part of their uh, residency, their mm. uh, uh, so their in initial flights into pastoral care. Yeah. I think it's a really good analogy, your, your analogy about the residency, because, I mean, they obviously full, are full-on priests, and they're exercising their ministry, but they're kind of doing it under the tutelage of somebody who's older, maybe more experienced, has uh, hopefully some wisdom that can uh, be shared with them. That's really great. That's a really That's great point. That's very important. Yeah. One thing I might point out I find very interesting is uh, 
Uh, Father Michael, uh, excuse me, Father Bruno Michael Salvaraj is a native-born Asian Indian who mm. came to Michigan for work, and it was while he was working in one of the automobile-related uh, operations uh, that he discovered his vocation. And I find it fascinating that Father Bruno's family traces its uh, Catholic faith back to St. Francis, uh, Francis Xavier, yeah. that uh, their ancestors were evangelized by the great Jesuit missionary. Wow. That's awesome. That's really huge. That's a really big deal. That's great, though. Archbishop, I know you've been busy, though, too, because obviously this, with, it, with this uh, last... Um, Round of vocation. I'm sorry. With the, with the ordination, you actually concluded the year of pre prayer for priestly vocations. I know it's a it's a big deal. You know, last year we only had we had zero uh, ordinations. This year, though, we had five at the conclusion of this year. So that's kind of obviously a promising sign, which is great. Um, now that the year's kind of come to a close, I mean, I don't, was there anything you wanted to share specifically? I know, of course, we don't want to stop praying for our priests and vocations in the archdiocese. Was there anything you wanted to mention specifically about that close of the year of prayer for priestly vocations? Well, the most important thing is, uh, you've already said, Mike, is that we need to keep on praying. Uh, I hope that uh, in this year of prayer, we've developed a habit. Uh, I've been impressed when I go from parish to parish, how many people know the prayer by heart. And mm. so I hope they'll keep uh, praying the prayer. And, I hope, and I'm, I've written a letter to the priests asking them to continue to make this a petition in the, the life of their communities. The other thing to, uh, I want to say is uh, we need to end the year with the attitude of uh, uh, Father Solanus and give God thanks ahead of time for the graces we know we can be confident in faith that he will be giving us as a result of our prayer. Uh -huh. uh, our Lord clearly speaks in the gospel that when we pray in his name, uh, we know we'll get a hearing. and. We know that this is a, a petition that meets with the heart of Jesus. So mm -hmm. we just have to wait for him to act because he will. Also, I suppose the last thing to think about is uh, for those of us who are responsible particularly for building up the culture of our archdiocese, uh, the priests, the deacons, the catechists, uh, the uh, lay ministers, we need to continue to build a culture that celebrates vocations. And that begins by, in catechesis, reminding, helping all of the faithful understand that everybody has a vocation. Everybody has a mission uh, for which uh, they, uh, they were born, that they were brought into existence by God. I love the way you said that, Archbishop, because, um, you know, I work in the Office of Family Ministry, and we work very closely with Father Craig. Um, in vocations because it's our mission to really help families understand that the, the first understanding of vocation happens in the home, right? We, we try to give our kids an understanding of, of what the vocation of marriage looks like, and we also try to raise them in a way that uh, teaches them to really discern what God wants for them in their lives, and that that's, that's your ultimate goal. You know, when we start those conversations about, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? We try to always say, well, what, you know, what do you think the Lord wants for you? What kind of talent or gifts has he given you? And how can you use those to bring glory and honor to God? And find the happiness God wants you to have. I don't know that we really appreciate that as much as we understand how badly we each want to be happy, God wants it more. God yes. is more concerned about my happiness than I am. 
<laughs> as mind-blowing as that is, but it's the truth. It's a beautiful reminder. Thank you. And Archbishop, you also attended uh, the Archbishop's Gala just recently, too, an annual event that supports the seminary and all of its ministry and forming priests and lay ministers. How did that go? That was a beautiful evening. Uh, it's uh, a wonderful program. Uh, the hall was filled uh, downtown at the Huntington Place. And uh, it was an opportunity for all of the benefactors and friends of the seminary uh, through the program, uh, first of all, to be told thanks. Uh, this apostolate of priestly formation, the seminary as a school for uh, priestly formation, ministry formation for the lay ministers, uh, diaconal formation is an essential work of the church in the archdiocese. And I, it's a chance for me to say thanks for my coworkers, those who support the work and also for them to have a little bit of a glimpse into the nature of the work that we do. And uh, especially they do that through uh, uh, meeting the seminarians and also uh, through the videos that uh, the team prepares. So it was a great evening. And we were only about five or 10 minutes over time and I think people appreciate that too. And then uh, just recently you celebrated the Feast of Corpus Christi known as the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ. And uh, we asked the parishes this year, you asked the parishes this year to lead a Eucharistic procession through the streets, literally bringing Jesus out um, of the churches and into their communities. And, and you had a procession from the cathedral, is that right? We did. Uh, last year, to inaugurate the year of Eucharistic revival, we did an extraordinary procession. We walked from uh, the cathedral the two miles or so over west to the seminary. This year, uh, we processed in front of the cathedral up and down Woodward Avenue, which I think was a beautiful manifestation of how uh, much we treasure the most blessed sacrament. Uh, uh, it was a great, uh, great act of devotion, and I think a way for us to recommit ourselves to participate in the Eucharistic revival. One of the thoughts that occurred to me, and I mentioned it to the congregation before we began, one of the thoughts that occurred to me is uh, the times and places in the past when uh, our fellow Catholics would have risked their lives to make such a de demonstration of devotion to the most blessed sacrament, mm. and how blessed we are that we can witness freely. And, uh, and by our witness, I think, invite other people to come and, and join us in celebrating the Eucharist, which is what makes our Lord happy. Our Lord, you know, we have the parable of the wedding feast and the Lord of the feast wants everybody to come in. He wants his hall to be filled. And that's very much the way, uh, the truth of that is about inviting people to the Holy Eucharist. You know, using that as a, as a point of segue, I know, Archbishop, we've had, since 2019, we've had many episodes, of course, discussing many different things. We've talked about the Eucharist a number of times. We've talked about Scripture, of course, and different styles and types of prayer. But somehow we have never actually had a full episode speaking about the Mass, which, of course, was what, you know, we just celebrated the, the Mass, the Liturgy of Corpus Christi. Um, and we so never, we've never actually, isn't that crazy that we've never actually had an episode fully on the Mass, which is wild to me to think of. But I know we've talked about the Mass in many ways over the years that we've done these uh, episodes. But 
Uh, today, I think we hoped as a, a topic just to focus specifically on that, its distinct parts, uh, and also our your own guidance on, to us as far as how to participate and um, in within the mass uh, for ourselves. And hopefully, uh, the next time we attend mass after listening to this episode, it'll just be uh, much different and better, and much more um, fulfilling experience because we just understand a little bit better. So, but leading into this uh, topic, then Archbishop, I was wondering if you might just help describe the Mass to somebody who maybe doesn't know anything about the Catholic faith or, or simply, you know, uh, maybe they just think it's just our version of like a, you know, hey, that's what Catholics do, just like, you know, Protestants have their service, this is their service. What makes the Catholic Mass so distinct, and um, and how would you describe it to somebody who doesn't know? I think the place to begin, Mike, is to say that it's a sacrament given to us by Christ himself at the Last Supper, and so it's a sign but we then have to go right away to say it's a sign that accomplishes what it signifies. It's a sign, a, a ritual meal, which under the appearances of sign, ratify, renews the covenant between God and his church. And so, uh, you know, you asked me to be uh, a little bit uh, 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 not brisk, but uh, basic about it. I mean, there's mm. so much one could say. Oh, yeah. It's a sacrament. It's a sacrament that accomplishes what it signifies, and in in that, it is both a sacrament uh, that uh, is a sacrifice. It's the offering under the appearances of bread and wine, the body and blood, the soul and divinity of Jesus to the Father, and it's about communion. It's about receiving the body and blood of Christ and through that reception, being drawn into his own communion with the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh. Uh, I can't, I, I, I thought about this, Mike, I can't get it much simpler than that, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a hard, it's a hard ask, I'm so, so I'm so sorry for having to have, have to ask the no, difficult question. No, it's a good challenge but, to me, yeah, but that's the best yeah. I can do. Yeah. No, I love what you say that though, especially about it being a sacrament, which is you know this this idea of participation, this idea of an outward sign of an inward, deeper spiritual reality going on. Because uh, a lot of times I think there is like for most people, I think when they think of going to mass or going to any uh, prayerful worship, they think about kind of like the show of it. I think and like I'm going to go attend and watch, if you will, this show, and I'm kind of in search of God, but. I love what you said there because it really designates the idea that really God is coming down, descending, and seeking us out, which is beautiful. It's about we're offering myself and my life and whatever is the milieu or the sphere that God has entrusted to me, giving it back to God along with the body and blood of Jesus. And because it's uh, those things are offered together, I can be sure that uh, he, that God is pleased with what I offer. Hmm. Well, I have a simpler question for you, Archbishop. Okay, One of that'll our be helpful, Nicole. I'm sure some of our listeners are wondering, why do we call it Mass? Well, that name comes from the dismissal at the end. In Latin, it's ite misa est. Go, uh, she, the church, understood is sent forth, is put out on mission. And so the name for the dismissal has, in our usage, become uh, the name for the whole rite. It's it, it, Misa Est, it is the dismissal, it is the Mass. Uh, 
Now the more proper name, of course, is the, is the Holy Eucharist. In the Byzantine tradition, it's called the Divine Liturgy, meaning the liturgy that comes from God himself. But uh, it's kind of a shorthand term that uh, we and uh, the Christianity of Central and Western Europe and those that were evangelized from there have picked up. That's actually really beautiful because it points to, you know, what happens after Mass, what happens when we leave there, not just what happens inside the church. Right. Uh, it's the Second Vatican Council in the uh, dogmatic constitution and the liturgy said that the, the Holy Eucharist, the liturgy, and especially the Eucharist, is the source and the summit uh, of uh, God's work in, in the church. And so it's the summit, it's where we bring ourselves, and it's the source where we receive the strength to make a gift of ourselves. Because that is salvation, is to make an offering of ourself to the Father. Uh, there's no other place for us to be safe, to be saved, to be secure, than to be in the hands of God our Father. And so there is no other holiness than to be an offering uh, into God's hands. Anything that we want to be secure for all eternity needs to be entrusted to God. Everything else is false in its promise of safety. And then thinking about how beautiful this experience is of participating in Mass, um, I'm sure a lot of the listeners of Beyond Sunday are wondering, what kind of encouragement or advice would you give to families who are working with their, their young children, trying to keep them connected to Mass, to keeping them you know, aware of what's happening around them and being able to more fully participate? Well, I think, Nicole, you're the one who should answer that. <laughs> you, you, from what you told me about uh, your, uh, from what you mentioned at the beginning about your podcast, um, I don't know that I'm really very good about it. Uh, I think to uh, look at, uh, maybe to talk to the children about uh, what they think is going on and build on the, their own experience of what, what's happening and maybe offer some uh, coaching about uh, how to improve on uh, insights that are sound and maybe offer a little bit of correction or coaching about, well, no, you maybe think about it this way. And I think one of the most important ways to think about being at the Eucharist is to stop thinking about what I get out of it and to think about what I bring to it, that I make a gift, first of all. And it occurs to me that little children particularly like to bring gifts. Uh, I often think about how children in their naivete pick dandelions and bring them as gifts to uh, their mothers. Yes. <laughs> Maybe not a particularly welcome gift since uh, the, uh, <laughs> the sap stains your hands. But I think there's something quite natural about that. And maybe for parents to be uh, discerning, uh, do acts of discernment about what the Holy Spirit is already doing in the hearts of children to make them prayerful and how parents can uh, 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 build on that and uh, increase the intensity of it. 
Does that make sense, Nicole? Yes, Archbishop. I think that's I think that's wonderful advice, and we you know we have certainly talked about it on Beyond Sunday. Actually, the episode just from leading up to Corpus Christi, we talked a little bit about kind of encouraging even the littlest kids to uh, you know just start with those small gestures, like how to genuflect in front of the tabernacle and and how to make the sign of the cross. But certainly, the idea of encouraging them to bring a gift, even if the gift is themselves, is just such a beautiful way to think about it. Thank you. What about you, Mike? In your catechesis, maybe I don't know that you have such young kids, but you 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 deal with more uh, uh, middle school age, right, and older. Um, yeah, over the years, I've dealt with kind of middle school and high school age, and I, I, I've found that um, you know oftentimes I think the idea of gift is is off a great one that you uh, recommended there, and what Nicole kind of ratified as well um, for the, I think the younger ones. I think for the older ones, I think it's more of just like they just don't really fully understand what's what's happening and like why it matters and so to give them kind of to help frame a context for them um and explain what's going on and why it matters and and really i think i found a lot of success in in explaining kind of the divinization aspect that like god became man so that man could become like gods you know and that this is the way this happens is through the sacraments most specifically through the eucharist you are what you eat and Mm. um usually a lot of like you can see light bulbs kind of go off with that comment you know like God really wants so badly for you to become like him that he's willing to give you himself so that you can like literally eat his flesh and blood and then you are turned into him. Um, that really that really seems to work. You know what I mean? I don't know if you have, hopefully that's, hopefully that's good theology. I know it's going back to the, <laughs> yeah, the saints no, archbishop, fine. but yeah. No. What occurs yeah. to me when you talk about that and from what I know about tweens and teens is <laughs> this is the, the uh, awakening in them of uh, the uh, a real capacity for friendship, uh. Uh, and do they understand that uh, the Lord is waiting there to receive their friendship and give them His friendship? That that's that's what this is about, uh, and that He longs for this friendship more than we want friends. He wants our friendship. Mm. Uh, would that help too do you think i do think so yeah i mean i think uh absolutely you're 100 percent right that that is the foundational time of like deepening of their own friendships where they're kind of moving out of their home uh home space of like their family is their friends and their family at the same time and they're trying to kind of broach and get outside of their family to make other extend their family if you would with their friendships and so that that absolutely i think would work well what do you think nicole being a parent of some tweens and moving into teenage years do you think that would work well too yeah, absolutely. And that actually reminds me of the, the video that um, was released shortly before the the priestly ordinations. I think it was Father Jeremy, now Father Jeremy, who said, you know, when you're discerning a call to the priesthood, don't don't focus on the call. Focus on your friendship with Christ, right? Like the call is going to come out of a relationship with Jesus. He's going to mm-hmm. call you to the priesthood or to whatever vocation he's asking of you um, through through your authentic friendship. And so I think that's a really wonderful way of encouraging the kids because they are, they're really looking for what's my identity here? You know, what's my, what's my meaning or my purpose here? That's what they're trying to explore. So mm-hmm. if we kind of point them to this, this wonderful person in Christ who can walk with them and help them kind of uncover that, um, I think that's a really beautiful way of enriching their experience at Mass. Well, Archbishop, I wanted to move on to ask also, 
if you might just kind of give us a brief walkthrough of the mass, like the obviously we have multiple parts that happen during the mass, uh, but as you move through them, if you just from from a bishop's perspective, from a priest's perspective, these parts, because it's it's one thing to have you know for many of us Catholics, we've gone to mass our entire lives, and we may or may not know that obviously we feel the movements of the mass, we just know them if we're there and we attend regularly enough or often enough, but we might might not be able to name the parts of the mass specifically and know exactly why that's there or, or maybe some of the history or the the pieces behind it so if you might be willing to kind of share with us those those movements or parts of the mass but also from your perspective as a celebrant of the mass what that what that really what you see happening there and what that means from your perspective of celebrating the mass well mike uh, the core of the mass has two principal parts uh, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the eucharist and each of those parts has an adjacent part. The core begins with introductory rites and the core ends with concluding rites. So it's, it's got a beautiful kind of architecture. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, maybe let's start, we'll leave the core, we'll go through it chronologically then. Hmm. So the introductory rite to the core, uh, the priest comes into the church uh, kisses the altar, greets the people, and in that greeting, he really uh, is uh, reminding and, and making real the fact that we are gathered around Christ. Uh, the, uh, the, the greeting, the Lord be with you, or what I can say as a bishop, peace be with you, uh, is to remind the congregation that it's Christ who's presiding here. And so we prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries at, in these introductory rites. That's, uh, that's basically what's going on, to not simply begin uh, with the liturgy of the word, but to uh, uh, prepare ourselves mm -hmm. both to uh, hear the word and then to receive the word made flesh as we offer him in sacrifice and then receive him in Holy Communion. So then part uh, one of the, the central reality, the Liturgy of the Word, uh, the sacred scriptures are proclaimed and in that we have a testimony about the great deeds that God has done to save the world. and. What I, my own way of thinking about this proclamation of the, the testimony, the inspired testimony, is that it, it is different from, say, a, a scripture uh, service because it serves also as an introduction to part B of the central reality because the deeds that are proclaimed in the scriptures uh, whether it's the prophets or Old Testament history or what Paul tells us or what uh, the evangelists uh, record, uh, these great deeds are about to find their fulfillment in the, uh, the liturgy of the Eucharist. And so while it has the, the scripture readings and the homily and the prayers of the faithful that follow as a response. They have their own integrity, uh, and we ha see that structure in prayer services. They're, they're not a detachable piece. They're an integral part to prepare us 
to give God praise and thanks. We proclaim what he has done, what he is doing, so that when we offer the Eucharist, when we offer the thanksgiving, uh, we have heard God tell us uh, the meaning of who he is and what he's doing. That's the way I think about uh, mm. the liturgy of the, of the word. It, so mm. in another way, it fits the nature of the covenant. The covenant between the church and God is a marriage covenant. And so in the liturgy of the word, God it takes the initiative. He comes to his bride, the church, he speaks. And in the liturgy of the Eucharist, he's given us the response. We, we, we do need to respond to his initiative. And uh, he, he makes this gift of himself in the Eucharist and he gives us the gift of being able to make a gift of ourselves in return. That, that's the liturgy of the Eucharist. Hmm. I, I'm most, you ask me what strikes me as a priest. I'm hmm. very, very uh, taken with the dialogue when hmm. I ask the people to lift up their hearts, to have them open to thanksgiving, to receive the gift of God, and they say they've lifted them up to the Lord. And I say, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And they say it's right and just. And then I pick up on what they say. Boy, you are so right. It is always <laughs> and everywhere right to give God praise and thanks. That's mm. what salvation means, that there isn't any experience we're having in which God cannot be offering us his grace. And how is that possible? It's because Jesus has died and risen. He went, he faced the worst of all human experiences and he transformed the murder of life himself into an experience of showing the love of God, the son to the father and the love to us. And so in remembering what he's done, he accomplishes it he represents what he has accomplished in our presence in remembering the sacrifice, in remembering that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, gave himself, consecrated himself, in remembering by the power of the Holy Spirit, what he did is made present to us. And so uh, this, the sacrifice of Calvary, uh, the acceptance of the sacrifice on uh, Easter, is made present in, in our midst. Why? So that we can be joined to it. That's what's new about uh, the liturgy of the Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass. It's the, it's the sacrifice of Calvary of 2,000 years ago, but it's now here in Detroit or in Monroe or in Hazel Park, so that the people of Detroit or Hazel Park or Monroe uh, can be be present with it and to it and join themselves with it. Uh, that's <clears throat> the, it's called often the, in Greek, the, the anaphora, the, the remembrance. And once, once this has been completed and it reaches its consummation, when the priest, uh, and if he has a deacon with him, the priest shows God the Father, the body of Jesus on the paten and the deacon picks up the chalice and shows God the Father the blood of Jesus, which is the very blood 
that came from the wounds of Jesus on Calvary shows them to the Father and says, through Jesus, with him and in him, all glory and honor is yours. The glory I offer in my work as a postal carrier, as an engineer, as a homemaker, as a student, is God's forever and ever. And then, after we consummate that part of the sacrifice, we begin with the Our Father and enter the communion rite, uh, which is a, uh, the last part of the liturgy of the Eucharist, where we have St. Paul calls it, our blessing cup is communion in the blood of Christ. Uh, we, uh, the, the, where is the, the offering of Jesus? It's in his flesh and blood. And so by eating and drinking his flesh and blood, by receiving them, we are taken into that act and it becomes our act as well in Holy Communion. And that's how the, how the Holy Eucharist is the food of immortality because it's uh, a communion in the immortal, uh, never to die again, offered body and blood of Jesus. And after communion, uh, a kind of a closing prayer to wrap things up, a, a post-communion oration, and then we conclude with a really quite brief, uh, of course it depends, a lot of parishes have long, uh, long uh, announcements, but uh, <laughs> a very brief ceremony of a final blessing and mm -hmm. uh, a dismissal uh, being sent on mission. Oh. And that's, that's what I call, the, that, that's the concluding rite. Yeah. So what, what, what wasn't clear? <laughs> Ask me no. questions if you need to. <laughs> No, it wasn't so much that anything wasn't clear. I mean, you did a great job, beautiful job walking through that um, and, and articulating specifically some very awesome parts. I mean, I'm just thinking to myself sitting here and I'm like, man, we need to do like a three or four parter on this one because there's so much that could be talked about, of course. You know what I mean? So, I was just thinking I need to listen to this back again and take notes. <laughs> I know, I know. Because just, uh, yes. Well, let me, let, me, let me recommend a catechetical tool. Uh, there is a... The abbot of uh, uh, Mount Angel Abbey in Oregon, who's written a book, What Really Happens at Mass. Mm. And it's a wonderful book. It's uh, Abbot Jeremy Driscoll. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I recommend it to all your listeners. It's a fine catechetical tool, uh, quite understandable, but uh, very rich in its uh, presentation of each of the parts of the Mass, what happens at Mass. Yes, I'm familiar with that book, Archbishop, and it, you're right. It is an uh, actual phenomenal book. Um, but truthfully, I mean, you, I, I, I don't know. I love what you said. I think you had a lot. There's so much to, like you just said, Nicole, you want to go listen back and take notes. I mean, there's so much to chew on just from what you said today, mm -hmm. walking through the Mass. And maybe this will have to be a multi-parter because I know we have some other notes here to, to go through, but I don't... I don't know if we're gonna have the time today, just because of uh, just of everything you've run through so far, Archbishop, which is beautiful. But I don't know. Was there was there anything else specifically you'd like to share regarding the mass that you didn't get to share already? Was there anything else you'd like our listeners to know, especially from your perspective as an Archbishop today? Well, Mike, you asked me about that point uh, about the way I celebrate and what yeah, uh, yeah. strikes me. Uh, a very powerful moment is when I hold up the host and. Uh, I say, behold the Lamb of God. 
Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, I, I know I'm using the Baptist words at that point, but it's, it's as true, it was as true yesterday when I said it in the cathedral as it was true when the Baptist said it on the banks of the Jordan mm. to Andrew and uh, the other disciple. And I, I'm just overcome with the, the goodness of God that he would, be, that Christ would be so present to us. Uh, he, he is as truly present to his people today as he was true in the Holy Land during his earthly life. Uh, this is for me a very, very powerful moment. That's beautiful, Archbishop. Well, Archbishop, we've reached that moment in our podcast where we love to hear questions from the lay faithful who listen to this podcast. Specifically today, we're excited to hear some questions from uh, Catholic schools and some of the Catholic school students throughout the entire Archdiocese. So I'll jump right on in. So our first question is actually from Alexandria at Austin Catholic, and she asks, why do you think Catholic teens tend to veer away from going to Mass? This is very apropos with today's topic. Mm. One of the thoughts I have about this uh, is that uh, it's a cultural challenge, that uh, there is a, just a kind of a common, perhaps even unarticulated attitude in our culture uh, that the Christian faith is something of the past. It's, it's an, an old thing to be left behind along with rotary telephones. Mm. Uh, and kerosene <laughs> lamps, and yeah. uh, it just doesn't have a relevance to life. So mm. I, I think that can be, be part. It's a cultural challenge. And also, um, perhaps uh, uh, people are forgetful, young people might be forgetful of the fact that uh, the Eucharist is not about what you get, it's about what you can give there. And that might be important for young people to be aware of because there is a natural generosity typically in, in teens to want to be generous. We see this in their ready uh, uh, response when they're called upon for uh, service. Mm. So those are a couple of thoughts I have. And Archbishop, this next question comes from Shana at St. Michael in Livonia. This, this is kind of a toughie. It's, it's pretty deep. <laughs> she says, how would you sum up the Catholic faith to someone from a different religion? I would start, well, you're right, Nicole, there's so much to say. <laughs> but I would begin with the simple truth that uh, the Catholic faith is a covenant uh, between Christ and the church and uh, a covenant that comes from uh, Christ uh, giving himself to the church in his uh, death and rising, and the church giving herself back to him. And in this way, we have eternal life. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is the simplest uh, kind of, the, uh, you're trying to point, uh, boil it down to the DNA, and I think mm -hmm. that's, the, it, the DNA is it's a covenant mm -hmm. between God the Son and the church. And yes. in that covenant, we have uh, ha eternal happiness and salvation. And Archbishop, our final question is actually from JT at St. Augustine. And he asks, or she asks, uh, 
Were you ever an altar server? And if so, what was that like? Yes. In my parish in Anchorville, uh, you could start being an altar server in the fourth grade. Uh, the sister who uh, ran the service uh, said, uh, she gave me a dispensation. She, she knew I wanted to be a server so I could start in the third grade. So that was oh, always a you. blessing. <laughs> yeah, look at me. But I was, uh, one of the things I think about, I mean, besides the great privilege it was, it was a blessing to me. I think about it so very, very much. Uh, and Sh Sister Jane Francis was great as a catechist because we talk about evangelizing catechesis. She was an evangelizing catechist. Huh. She shared her own uh, personal commitment to Jesus with us and taught us as we served how to uh, live out our commitment to Christ. So that's at the highest level. How else was it? It was tough learning the Latin responses by heart and mm. once in a while, and I remember some times when I flopped and Father had to correct me. And I also remember how when I started, uh, the missile was pretty big and quite heavy, and I was afraid I was going to trip. So <laughs> that, that's the kind of the human ordinary side of it all. Yeah. Did you uh, altar serve up until the time where you would have entered seminary and stuff at that point? Or did you, was there a point where you kind of ended? Like, no, how was the I culture kept, that time? I kept, I kept going and into the eighth grade, and then I entered the seminary in the ninth grade, so I continued oh, okay. to serve at the parish when I was home for holidays and such. Yeah. Actually, uh, I was such a, I was so good at this. When I was in the eighth grade, I used to teach the younger kids how to serve Mass. Oh, nice. I have an eighth grader who is also an altar server, and he, uh, he just asked our, our, our pastor at our home parish if he could run an altar server boot camp, so... <laughs> Oh, wow. I, I understand the inclination there. Well, he, he loves serving at Mass, and, and it's cool to have those big kids there, right? Because then the little kids really look up to them, and, and they see something that they want to aspire to. So what a gift. You know, you make me think of a kid when I was, I don't know, third grade, fourth grade. I don't remember his first name, but his family name was Redman. And uh, I remember him, you know, of course, when you're, what, eight a kid who's 13 seems mm. like a, a giant yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, he was so kind to me like a big brother i just remember that i, I was made me feel so good to serve with him he was patient oh, nice. with me uh, with big help oh beautiful so That's nice yeah w nicole what's your son's name ryan so when ryan runs the boot camp uh, <laughs> don't let him forget how uh, the little kids look up to him and how important that is. And someday a guy who's 74 years old will remember uh, remember those experiences. That's yeah, a wonderful that's advice. I will be sure to share that with him. Yeah. Large Bishop, as we kind of uh, come to a close, I wanted to ask, of course, if there's any specific prayer intentions you have uh, that we can be praying for you for this next month. You know, Michael, I've been reading about uh, the lack of hope in young people and the great toll mm. that this is that this depression is uh, uh, taking on our young people. I would just invite everyone to be one with me in asking the Holy Spirit to be the consoler, to mm. be the advocate, the paraclete in the hearts of our young people, 
so that they, their lives be brightened by uh, the light that God wants them to have. And I know that's pretty general, but it's been very much on my heart these days. Mm. I, I love that. That's a beautiful request, especially if it's something that's just true to your heart right now because of what you're reading or the influences and things that you're looking into. That's, that's great. Always mm-hmm. a good prayer intention. And Archbishop, would you mind closing us with, a, with your prayer and your blessing, of course? Happy to do that. Let's uh, particularly offer all of our aspirations for God's glory uh, into the hands of Our Lady who will uh, intercede for us for the graces we need to fulfill those aspirations. Holy Mother of God, we trust you. You've been given to us by Jesus from his cross. And we ask that in all things, uh, you will unite us to your loving heart. And so in that way, we will be like you, faithful disciples. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May Almighty God bless all of you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Archbishop. Thank you, Archbishop. Oh, you're welcome, Mike, Nicole, thank you. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also enjoy Beyond Sunday, a new podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.